Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Today is Precision Painting Plus's COO, Joe Galeas. Joseph is considered a people manager with a proven background in developing and leading teams, building relationships, and engaging employees in business-related decisions. His experience in operations from the front line to the boardroom has brought him repeated success in building successful teams from the ground up and in inheriting underperforming teams and turning them into success stories. As the COO of Precision Plus, Joseph organizes leadership and strategic vision to drive operational excellence, improve management competence, optimize administrative processes, simplify reporting structures, and bolster the company's internal control systems. He's tasked with revamping the company culture as they prepare for an aggressive expansion. Professional journey that began at the age of 22 in the IT industry, Joe took on an array of frontline operations roles, eventually progressing to managerial positions. At the age of 35, he earned his PMP certification and went back to school to gain a bachelor's degree. At 39, he made a drastic career change from telecommunications to parking systems, taking on the demanding post of vice president of service, and turned around a struggling organization through effective leadership and Six Sigma principles. Soon after, Joe returned to school once again to attain his MBA, and in the years that followed, advanced his career through the ranks of EVP operations and then to COO. Joseph, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Glad to be here. I love your um, your kind of bio or the timeline of you getting to COO. And I know we talked um, briefly before hopping on that you wanted to talk about kind of progressing from the front line to um, COO, but I'm curious about the desire to go back to school a couple of times through the career as well. That's not a normal, quote unquote, normal path that we often take, but I love that you did it that way. It seems even more it seems more beneficial to have done the schooling the way that you did it versus the graduate high school, go to college. What was your, why was your path, you know, set that way? Well, I mean, that wasn't intentional, right? But it definitely worked to, to my advantage. And, you know, I'm going to take a page from your book, right? Vivid Vision, right? And I've always operated like that for my career. I've always, you know, pictured where I wanted to be in three years, right? And what seeds that I have to plant today to be there in three years. And, you know, over time, as I went, as I, attempt to take on opportunities to advance my career path, you know, I was kind of, I was hitting roadblocks, right? I had the real world experience. I had the resume experience, but I didn't have the piece of paper that would validate that I'm an expert, you know, in managing or operations. So that's why, that's part of the reasons why I did go back to school. Um, you know, and I'm glad I did that because going back to school, I got to bring a lot of real world experiences into the classroom and, mm. you know, not just providing myself with a lot of aha moments and connected dots, but I also got to give those to my peers as well. Was it said to you by employers that you needed to have the piece of paper or was it something that you felt or was it said to you by search firms that were trying to help you find career you know, moves? How, how did you identify that? Oh, it was said. It, it was said. And, and I remember that moment very, very vividly. You know, I went for a director position of operations and I really wanted this position with Comcast. Right. I looked at them as a powerhouse and I wanted in. And I went through many, many layers of, of the interview process all the way up to the VP. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm at the fourth round. This yeah. is definitely mine. We're just checking off boxes. At I this got point. this. A couple of weeks go by and I'm not hearing anything. And they say they're just going through the rounds of one more candidate. And when they came back to deliver me, the, you know, the bad news. Obviously, my first question was, well, what did the other person have that I didn't have? 
And the answer was, was flat out. The only difference was he had the degree and you didn't. Wow. And I, kid, and I kid you not, Cameron, it was that day where I had a conversation with my wife and I said, I'm never going to I'm never going to allow myself to be in this position again. I'm never going to lose a role because I didn't have a piece of paper. I don't I don't feel like I need that piece of paper. Yeah. But if I want to get to where I want to be in three years, I need to go back to school. And uh, within a few months, I was enrolled back at Wentworth Institute getting my bachelor's. What year was that roughly? That was around 2012, 2013, I'd say. Okay, so still current enough that because um, you, you were hearing now that the tides are slowly changing for companies, but I mean I don't know if that's urban legend or if it's really happening. But we're hearing that companies are no longer looking for the degrees, but I'm not really convinced that that's the truth. And if if that was 2012, 2013, that's recent enough that um, yeah, the piece of paper is still required. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you what, there, there is some truth to that, right? And some of that truth is within my own process when I hire, right? Because of because of that experience, I don't hold that against an individual. I'm more interested in what their personalities are like. Are they going to match the culture? What's their drive? What's the progression on their resume? You know, are they targeting advancement? Um, have they been involved with, with, with large organizations or have they managed teams? Um, yeah, the piece of paper certainly helps because it solidifies that they have that classroom, that, that, that education and that experience. But I don't hold that to them. I don't. I don't mark that as a necessary criteria. Was school tough for you in high school? I wouldn't say so. No, not at all. And so, why did you not go from the high school into college back in that kind of normal, again, quote unquote, stream? Was it just because you had that you had an opportunity to go work and grabbed it, or? Well, I I did go actually. I did go straight to college right after high school. Um, I went for my arch my associates in architectural engineering. Um, and around, I'd say 19, 20 years old, I started young to build a family. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, so that kind of took some of my time away from pursuing, you know, pursuing my, my college degree, uh, took some time off, but you know, lo and behold, I was able to make up for it. Okay. Makes sense. And the reason I was asking was I was curious whether school got easier for you when you went back more as a mature student and with the actual experience versus coming in as a younger, but I guess it's not relevant because you were probably, if you were doing architecture, uh, you were already a smart student in the first place. Yeah, but you know, but 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 you know, we're, at that age, you're kind of going through the motions because you feel like you know this is what needs to be done, right? I'm supposed to graduate. I'm supposed to go to college. You know, I'm supposed to you know go after the the the, the role that I want. You know, which at the time was to be an architect. This time around, it wasn't the I'm supposed to. It's I'm going to get in there. I'm going to do this. This is this is what I need because I want to be somewhere else in three to five years. Yeah, I have to do it for sure. So. Curious what it was like for you in the workforce days. I remember when I was building 1-800-GOT-JUNK as their COO, I was the first executive at the company. Actually, I think I was the first employee at the company to have kids. Um, and I remember the shift that happened for the team when they realized we couldn't have, you know, 7.30 in the morning meetings anymore. We couldn't consistently count on Cameron being there for beer at five o'clock. We didn't have you know, the the desire to go away for weekend retreats. We wanted to do the retreats during the week. And then once the rest of the leadership team caught up and were having kids, that became the norm. Was it difficult for you in the earlier days in, in building your career and, and, and kind of getting to where you are today to have kids at a younger age? Um, not necessarily. I have a very good support system with my wife. Um, you know, she definitely held down the fort as I pursued, you know, my goals of wanting to get my degree, um, you know, so that certainly helps. I mean, if, when you have that kind of a support, um, you know, that kind of foundation laid, um, you know, definitely, definitely easy the kind of stress that you would be carrying, you know, trying to juggle, juggle two paths at once. 
Yeah, makes sense. All right, let's go back and go through the front line to the to where you are today. So give us kind of your journey and and what do you think? Not so much the the you know this company, this company, this company, but what experience did you layer on to each you know each other layer of experience to get where you are? So when I was a uh, when I was a field engineer for Sprint, um, you know that's that's when I was really introduced into the world of operations um, because you know that was my introduction to working with all these various departments and witnessing just how connected they are, you know, witnessing just how the business is reliant on all these various departments to get things done. Um, and so it was at that time when I when I worked as a field engineer that I got to work with, you know, so many facets of a business. And that's when I took joy in because I had so much variety. You know, it wasn't every day where I was just working with the, the construction team on a new site. I wasn't just working with the commissioning department on bringing sites on air or working with the RF department to address some call drops and degradations. Every day was a, was a unique experience. Every day had something new to deliver. Um, and it was at that point where I realized like operations is what I wanted because of the variety that I introduced. Interesting. During that, during that experience of being a frontline employee, I also experienced a lot of the downsides of poor leadership. Um, you know, not having a mentor or, you know, asking for, you know, instruction and being told to go get it elsewhere. Um, you know, telling my superior that this is what I need in the field to be more successful and just being given the answer, well, listen, this is just on the budget. This is how it is. Um, and no discussion for an alternative solution. Like, so, but, you know, I also witnessed, you know, I also experienced the other side of that, having a great mentor that showed me the way of how you want to support your peers and how you want to support your, your subordinates. But it's because of those experiences that, you know, I told myself, I didn't want to become a leader. I didn't want the title of manager because I wanted to be able to give orders or because I wanted to have the title of boss. It's because I genuinely wanted to make a difference. I, I understood what it's like to be a frontline employee and kind of feel like you're on an island sometimes, right? And it can get lonely. And I wanted to change that. I wanted to bring my own sauce to the table and say, this is how a team should be. Where were you working with Sprint? What region were you in? Uh, New England. New England? What years were you there? I was there from 2000, I want to say 2005 to about 2010. Okay. Did you ever bump into a guy named Jamie Jones? Jamie Jones, no. Yeah, one when I, I started coaching Jamie and he was second in command to the CEO. He was president of the North American Operations, uh, reporting to Marcelo Claret. Marcelo came in to turn around Sprint to prepare it to sell to T Mobile. But I coached Jamie for about eighteen months and I coached uh, Marcelo a little bit at the C level as well, at the CEO level. A really, really intriguing company to see them have to switch from being corporate to entrepreneurial and you're right. There was a massive gap of leadership yeah. and empathy to employees. And um, it would have been really intriguing to have seen what you saw from from the front line, because I saw it from a very different perspective and it was broken. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, you know, you, you, it, I mean, it, it was a massive corporation, right? Huge, you know, huge. I mean, and I'm talking about, I was operating in the New England market, never mind, you know, across yeah. the country, um, you know, but, and, and I don't think the leadership, I don't think the gaps in leadership, I didn't, I didn't see the leadership levels at the CEO, CO, VP levels. You know, I was at the front line. I saw up to maybe director, maybe VP of a, of a Northeast sure. region. Yeah. Um, so that's where I, I witnessed the gaps in leadership and what I, you know, what I always told myself, when I get to that point, I'm going to make sure that things are completely different for myself. So what do you think you saw that, that you wanted to do differently? And what, what did you pull from there that you wanted to emulate? And, you know, what, what did they do well that you kind of continue to do today? Well, it was during those years working for Sprint that I was introduced to data analytics. And, mm. you know, something about numbers just grabbed my attention. It was a language that I understood. 
I would much rather read a bunch of math problems than a couple of words on a page. Um, and so I started using data analytics to really identify a lot of flaws in the system, a lot of issues, um, put it together, predictive analytics of here's what's going to happen if we continue down this trend. Um, and that was sort of my self-introduction into management. I would bring these, I would bring these reports and bring this information to management and tell them that these are, you know, this is what's gonna, this is what's gonna happen to these cell sites if things, if, if we don't make certain changes. And here's the changes that need to happen if you want to see a certain result. And it was, and I, I truly believe that it was because of my, you know, my desire and my utilization for data analytics that that's what that's what drew the attention of management to say, okay, let's. Let's see where he can take this and, you know, gave me the opportunity to become a manager of my own region. That's interesting because that was something I definitely saw with Sprint that they were doing quite well. They definitely had the data and understood the data and understood how to apply it and how to reason with it. Um, how do you work with companies today where you have so much data in helping the companies decide what data to really look at and what to ignore? It's almost like, you know, if you plug in your car into the computer system at the dealership, there's a million data points, but they only really need to look at 10. Right. Well, and really the way that I narrow that down is, is, is asking the question, right? Like what, what are we, are we reacting to something or are we looking for something? You know, that's how I always narrow it down. And then I'm able to identify, well, here's the data source. Here's the information that I need. And that information might come from a single data source or five data sources. Um, and I'm, and I'm really good at, you know, bringing the data together, cleaning the data, merging the data and analyzing it, and then actually packaging it up into some visual analytics for, for management and executive team. But really, that's what it comes down to is, you know, asking the question, what are we what are we trying to what's the answer that we're looking for here? How much time do you spend on the people side of the business when you're running, um, you know, at the C-level or even as an executive versus, you know, in, in looking at the data and the reports and the numbers and the analysis? Is there a split? I would say it's almost a 50-50 split um, and, and it shouldn't be. But that's but that's by choice, you know. Um, it's a passion that I have, you know, the, both the people and the data. I don't think I would want to give up, you know, either or or trade either or for. So it's it's actually a, almost a near split 50-50. I'm not sure that it should be different. I think when you have a unique ability to understand the data and you're spending that much time on the data, you might actually bring a different perspective into the people side of the business that that executives who are so people focused, but don't look at the data enough are completely missing. You know, I think that, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't ignore your unique ability and say that it should be different. Uh, I'd almost disagree and say, I think you actually have it probably nailed because you enjoy it, because you understand it, because you can extract it. And then I think you probably bring that into the people side in a more focused way. You know, I, I've often been on the far other side of the pendulum where the data to me gets um, gets a little bit overwhelming. And I, I use my massive ADD. I have 17 of the 18 signs of attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. So because I have this ADD, I see everything. So for me, I have a very, very clear perception and a lot of intuition from my years in business. And I carry the intuition and perception in to the people side of the business. So I, I don't think what you're doing is bad, bad at all. I, I more <laughs> go, wow, I wish I could do what, what Joe does. So yeah, no, and whenever I do, you know, come across, you know, data, it's it's not just about it. it the, the whole purpose is to bring an answer to the question, right? Like, like that's that's the that's the purpose here. But what I get out of it is 
the 15 things that I learned through the process that the untold stories that have been lying in data this whole time, you know, mm. you, for example, let's just use a, a sales team for an example, right? You look at a sales team and you say, oh, wow, you got 10 sales guys, 10 salesmen, and this guy is, is knocking it off the park. He's number one in sales, you know, consistently month after month. But then there's 14 pieces of other data that might question whether he's the top salesman, right? What's his close rate like? What, what's the value in his losses? Uh, what's his cancellation rate? You know, what's his growth rate? Is he progressing month after month, year after year? And if none of those other answers are going, are tilting on the positive side of the scale, then and then is he really your top salesman? Because what about the salesman that is only generating half of what he's half, is only generating half of what he's generating. However, his close rates are progressing. His 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 losses are decreasing. Mm. His cancellations are near are near, you know, non are non-existent. That then tells me that's your true top salesman and that's the one you want to invest in. So that's what I that's where I get so much joy in data is the information that I wasn't even necessarily looking for, but then stumbled upon. And then you just keep peeling back the onion. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, Precision Painting Plus. And I want to just find out a little bit of what that industry is. I've, I've been involved in the, in the the painting industry, but I don't know where your business fits in terms of the industry itself. And I've also coached a couple people that are in the painting industry. So I'm very curious as to where does your business fit? What do you focus on? So we're considered a nationwide home improvement company. Uh, 80% of our business is uh, interior and exterior painting. Okay. We're in six states across the country, all the way from New England to California. Okay. Um, you know, and we call ourselves a home improvement company because we do, you know, we do cabinetry, we do, you know, decking, we do staining, we do wallpapering, uh, slight, you know, slight renovations, but a bulk of our business is interior and exterior painting. So would Serta uh, Pro Painters be a competitor to you? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was I was actually offered the president of Serta Pro, uh, yeah. but a long time ago, 1989, um, when Serta Pro was only operating in about six different locations, and I told them to pound salt because I wanted to stick with College Pro Painters. I wanted to stay with the <laughs> the and College Pro and Serta Pro were the same company. Serta was a spinoff out of College Pro. Um, Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, College Pro from Toronto. College Pro actually just closed down after 50 years in the business. Um, and the reason they closed was they could no longer find university students to run franchises. They needed 800 franchises a year, and they could never find that many university students anymore because they all wanted to run online businesses and crypto right. businesses and flip, you know, that they, they, we lost the, the base. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you ever need any good summer help, there's 8,000 students available that want to paint houses for you now. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful to know. And I'm definitely going to, I'm definitely taking note of that. Yeah. It's a good business. So I love, I love the painting industry. How did you drop into painting uh, and into a business that you didn't, you didn't come from that industry at all? Well, and see, and I think that's the beauty of being, you know, an operation, right? Cameron is that, you know, you can take that operational expertise and leadership and you're a chameleon. You're basically a chameleon. You can hop from one industry to the other. Um, and for me, it was just time for a change, right? I was with my previous company, uh, Shaggin Backman, who is in, who is a global leader in, in parking uh, services. Um, and for me, it was just time for a change. I had done about just everything I could have done for that company. I turned things around, improved revenue, improved cost, uh, you know, reduced employee turnover, just about everything that you expect an operations executive to do. And, you know, I've said it before that, you know, what motivates me, right, and what gets, what, what fuels me is having something to put together, having something to fix, having something to clean up, right? So I was looking for that next assignment, so to speak. Mm, got it. Um, so, so Precision Painting Plus presented that opportunity, um, you know, 
by then, by the time I interviewed with Participating Plus, I had already known, you know, all the types of issues that would come with being an, an operations executive leader. And so they checked all the boxes, you know, everything I was looking for that needed help, you know, what kind of process do you have in place? Well, you let us know, um, you know, what's your culture like? What's your systems like? You know, so they had, they had basically had the opportunity that I was looking for to take my career and my skills to the next level. Makes sense. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the chameleon in my next book, which is called The Second in Command. I actually talk about the COO needing to be a bit of a chameleon because we really do have to adapt to the situation, to the industry, and then also to all the different business areas that we have to often oversee that we don't really often have the the depth of experience to run directly. Like often the COO couldn't run marketing or couldn't run IT or couldn't run finance, but we have those business areas reporting to us. So how do you gain how do you gain the confidence or you know, what do you work on in terms of your skill set to allow you to have that breadth of oversight and that breadth of connection with the different business areas? So my approach uh, when I get into an organization, Cameron, is very specific, right? I I want to document their end-to-end process, right? From how they how their business runs, how they generate revenue, right? From a lead all the way down to closing a project. And in doing so, right, I'm, I'm, I'm serving so many purposes, right? I'm learning about the business end-to-end. I'm having to interview every department. Well, what's your role in this? And when do you hand things off? And what department do you hand it off to? Then I'm off to the next department and I'm asking them the same questions. And I'm identifying if there's redundancies in the process, right? I'm identifying if there's bottlenecks in the process. Um, so my approach really is to go in there, do my homework and document the process from end to end. And then I have that map in front of me. And that's all the knowledge I need to know where all the bits and pieces lie within the organization. So I was just just speaking yesterday with one of our COO Alliance members, and she was saying that she does a lot of the same idea, the business process mapping. And what her focus is, is the automation and the kind of leveraging text, the tech stack to automate a bunch of the processes. Are you doing that as well? And and how are you keeping up on or staying ahead of the curve or understanding what tech to bring in? Or are you bringing in consultants to help you with that stuff? We don't have any consultants to, to help us with that stuff, but definitely always looking to automate something. But but in my studies of, of Six Sigma, one of the things I learned was automation doesn't necessarily improve the process, right? It doesn't necessarily improve the process. So that's one thing you have to be careful for. You know, it'd be nice for everything to be automated, but there are some things that you need to keep out of out of that circle. But yeah, I mean, that's why you put together that business process, right? Because that's where you're going to identify, like I said, your bottlenecks and redundancies. And is this where we want to flirt or experiment with automation? And if we do, how do we implement that that automation? Okay. So I've only had a very, very small glimpse of Six Sigma. I was down at Crotonville years ago with GE and they did some training of some CEOs and we got to to spend a couple days there. And so very, very small uh, introduction. Um, you know, I wouldn't even get green belt certified. Can you <laughs> can you simplify Six Sigma for us in a few minutes and tell us, you know, what are the what are the nuggets from Six Sigma that you can bring into a business or that a, a leader thinking about their business today can think about? So it's really it's a real it's a real unfair question. Where, where it's no, no, I big... mean, yeah, there, there's a lot. Let me let me see if I could do this in a matter of sixty seconds. <laughs> so it's really taking my approach that I described, right? Documenting from end to end what the process is, but not just documenting the steps. It's you know historically how long does it take from step one to step two and step two to four or five, six, seven, eight, right? Yeah. And how many people? Now you're talking about how many people does it take for each one of these steps? What's it costing? So then you start collecting all this data. And your, your goal is, how do we reduce that waste? How do, if there's waste, how do we reduce waste? 
How do we reduce the cost? And how do we increase uh, efficiency? That's really at the end of the day what Six Sigma comes down to because once you have that map, that process mapped out and you have all that data, there's what you can call your baseline. All right, it takes roughly you know three and a half months for this to happen from A to Z. Um, is that you know is that acceptable? And if it's not acceptable and the acceptable rate is two months, okay, now we have to shave forty five days off this. How do we get there? That's funny. I, I so after I went through this program, this is again this will be dating myself. So years ago, I used to sell. Uh, DVDs of my speaking events. So after I did a speaking event, I would sell DVDs of them and the people could show the rest of their employees later on. Sold half a million dollars worth of these DVDs at one point. And I realized I was getting orders and then packing the orders and then going to the post office a few days later and mailing them out. And then people would, you know, get their DVDs and, and that process would take like two weeks from the time they got the order to. So I'm like, I need to ship them faster. I need to run up to the to the post office. You know, I need to reduce time. And then I realized that's a fucking terrible process. What I need to do is, <laughs> is have my videos available online and you can click a button and you can buy them and you get them instantly. And I don't have to go to the office. To your point, I didn't need to automate me running up to the post office and packing them. I just needed to think about the process differently. Correct. Absolutely. Because automating a bad process or or automating a process we don't even need. Do you ever find that companies are working on stuff that just doesn't need to be done anymore? Yeah, and you identify and I've identified that a few times during, you know, my mapping of the entire business, right? You know, I identify things that like why why are we for, not just why are we doing it this way anymore, but why aren't we just handing this off to another department? Mm. You know, if they're already handling 30% of this activity, why are we holding on to these two pieces of why are we holding on to these two activities? So yeah, I mean, you, and that's the whole that that's what I get out of documenting these processes is that you're actually uncovering a lot of the business that they probably weren't aware was going on, right? And another thing, you know, being a people manager, you know, myself, because I'm going through this process, right? Unintentionally, you're creating an environment, a culture of collaboration and engagement because now you're interviewing these employees, asking them, you know, how how does your role work here? What would you do differently? What's challenging for you in this in, the, in this segment of the of the process? And what do you see as the most efficient? You know, and right there off the bat, you know, you're getting people and you're getting the employees involved. You're getting them engaged. They're part of the process now. They're mm -hmm. part of the decision making. And you know, essentially, they're part of something bigger now, where they are taking part in mapping out this process and how do we improve it? And I think you're talking about the whole workout process, right? GE calls it the workout process, where they come up with all the solutions and pick them and. I, I think it's such an elegant, beautiful process to bring into organizations. I also think that companies have opportunities to find there's probably certain products and services that they have that are so massively unprofitable because of the way that they need to deploy that product or service that it sometimes just makes sense to kill it versus even have it in the first place, right? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's not just with products and services, Cameron, but I mean, in some cases, um, you know, you got to think about is this is this the right customer for our portfolio, mm. right? Is this customer, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you're a business, right? You're here to make money, you're here to make a profit. And so you have to analyze the numbers and the data to find out, okay, this customer might be contributing to the top line, but how are they affecting the bottom line? You know, is it really a profitable contract to have with this customer? So it's not just products and services, it's also customers, but you need, all, you need data and you need to understand the process to be able to make those decisions. And are are you guys doing that with your customer base now, identifying like which psychodemographic profile to go after or which? Hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. Our marketing team has a very very uh, specific set of criteria based on you know 
the suburban area based on the average value of the homes, um, not just that, but that very specific geographic area, you know, majority of the dwellings are homes, right? And, and not apartments where people aren't going to invest um, in an apartment as much as somebody who owns a home. I was just about to ask you that, like, are you doing much about the commercial and industrial coatings and the apartment blocks and, and office, office towers, or are you really focusing on the residential market as your core? The residential market is our core. Out of, out of, you know, out of the entire portfolio, I'd say about 70 to 75% of our business is all residential. It's a tough bit. Like Brian at One Tender Got Junk um, acquired a company years ago called Wow One Day Painting. And he was going to going to expand it. And I begged him not to. I'm, this was after my time. I'd already left the company. But I'm like, dude, don't do it. You're crazy. It's a tough industry. It is not like paint, you know, like hauling junk. It's it's a complicated, very high touch business where you're dealing with someone's biggest asset. You're coming inside their home or on their property. You're dealing with, you know, kids around and dogs that are getting let out and, you know, spilling paint on their shingles or on their carpeting and blaming it on the cat. Um <laughs> Sounds like a very personal experience. Oh, yeah. Very personal experience. I don't remember the client's name, but it was bright white. Um, I think it was a latex, but we spilled an entire gallon of paint, which they shouldn't have been doing, going down her stairs, painting baseboards or something. And uh, so the, the painter that worked for me blamed it on her cat and tossed the cat into the paint. I'm like, dude, that is not, not okay. I was 21 <laughs> years old. I'm like, I, I, that is just not okay. I mean, it's brilliant. And, and incredible, but <laughs> okay. Um, what are the lessons you have for us from dealing with such a high touch, high customer experience business? Like where, you know, we talk about how important it is to have that connection with the customer, but you're really, really in with the customer. Can you give us some systems and some thoughts around, around comp- that companies can, can, can extract from that? Well, I think, you know, it starts with, so we have four touch points, right? With the, the way that we operate, right? The first touch point is our call center that collects all the information from a customer, right? You know, that's basically the lead. Second touch point is it goes to a project estimator who is the first point of contact to face the customer, right? And so our sales management team, you know, focuses immensely on that very first interaction, you know? And I think it's sales 101 where you hear all these kinds of sayings, right? These cliches like, oh, the sale is made in the first five minutes of a conversation or, you know, a perception or impression of somebody is in the first five, 10 minutes of a conversation. So, you know, they've crafted a very specific, uh, you know, pitch to when they, how they introduce themselves and how they introduce the company when they meet that customer. Because, I mean, you're a consumer of products and services, Cameron, right? I'm a, cons- I'm a consumer of products and services. Somebody shows up to your door, you're already starting to judge them. You're judging mm-hmm. the car that they pulled up in. You're judging, you know, how they walk into your your door. Are they shuffling with their hands in their pockets looking for a pen? Or are they, you know, are they walking the beeline? You know, what their first words are out of the mouth. Hey, are you Joe? Yeah, you called for an estimate? Like, that's just not a very good beginning to a conversation. And at the very end, how did you end that conversation? Did you give them a very formal and detailed estimate? Or did you just take a business card and put a number behind the card? Like, yeah, it'll be 5,000. Here you go. Call me when you're ready. So that first meeting is the most important out of every step in our process. And we invest a lot in making sure that not just that the staff understands how important that is, but even in the interview process, Cameron, we're already, when we're interviewing these individuals, we're already picturing them in front of the customer, mm. how they're how they're articulating themselves, how they're responding to objections, even on my end. You know? So, you know, so there's a lot that goes into, you know, making sure that, again, it's that one, what, 30 to 60 minute visit that could make you a million dollar company 
or a $50 million company. That's funny. You talked about like so many of the things you talked about, we were really trained on back at College Pro Painters. And I remember one day, I don't remember what I was doing, but I borrowed my dad's car to go out and do a quick estimate. And so I had, you know, my chinos and my, my golf shirt, my <laughs> college pro golf shirt on. But I, I hopped into his Cadillac and I pulled up in front of the home in the Cadillac and the homeowner was freaked out. And I had to go, Oh, I'm sorry. It's my dad's car. I'm like, never again did I ever do that. I was showing up with my yellow college pro van. It was parked out front. I mean, I had to look like I was the park. Yes. You can't show up in your dad's car. No, and no. Seriously. Did you have the music blaring as well? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> but yeah, and, and it, it isn't. It, it really isn't difficult. It's it's good that you're you're focusing on it right at the interview as well, and thinking about like what's this person going to be like. So go back to some of the people stuff for me. How do you know if the people that you're hiring are going to match the culture you're looking for? What do you look for in the interview to know if they're the right culture fit? Well, I'm looking for, you know, A, you know, why they're looking to make a change now, right? Um, you know, is it something to do with, you know, their current role or is it something to do with the environment they were in? You know, what what's driving them, what motivates them, and where 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 do they aspire to be in the next three to five years? Right. Are they are they okay with just the nine to five or are they looking for growth? Um, and then again, and also it's really in because these are positions that we're hiring for that have to be in front of the customer, um, it's really on how well they articulate themselves. I mean, and when I interview somebody, I'm throwing objections out. I'm like, you know, why should I hire you? Tell me like in two minutes why you would be better than the next two candidates I have to interview in the next hour, mm -hmm. you know, to, to see how they can react under that kind of pressure because customers will say the same thing. They will ask you that same question. Sure. I've got two more contractors coming in the next hour, but why should I pick you? Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's really not, there's, it's, it's not science. I mean, you know, so to speak, right. It's, there's also... Because, you, because I'm a manager of the people, you start to learn body language. You start to learn, you know, the, the twigs and the tweaks of what they're doing when they're having conversations with you. And you pick up on that. You pick up on what these nervous tics are. You pick up on, you know, is this person distracted? Why am I not getting eye contact? If I'm mm. a customer, I'm not going to appreciate that. So sure. it's all these little things that they could also be answering all the right questions. They could have all that experience, you know, that, that experience, that background. And this has been the case several times where on paper, this is the guy, but after a 15 minute conversation, it's no, we'll, we'll go to the next. Yeah. I could go, I could go into like so many stories to talk to you about with my whole painting, seven years of running a house painting company. Uh, but I won't cause this is more me learning from you. Um, I, I want to know on the frontline staff, the, the, the guys and women that are out there painting houses, you know, there's all of this stuff now that employees want the, you know, you have, have to hire people that this is their core purpose and that, you know, it's going to be their mission to, to do this and they have to find value. And at the end of the day, like, it's also just painting a house, like where it's hard, it's hard to find somebody who wakes up in the morning and go like, I want to do this, or maybe we do, right? Maybe we find them. How do you, how do you help the people that are doing the frontline blue collar work, you know, manufacturing, painting houses, working in a, in a production factory or, or a, you know, a shop floor or a warehouse? How do we help them feel good about the day to day and and feel a part of the organization? Or are we pushing rope? And is it more just OK that we make sure they enjoy their job and they go home and enjoy their family? Well, no, one of the things. So there's so there's two answers to that question. Right. So for the painters itself, you know, we hire contractors. Right. So we're subcontracting them. But what we are willing to do to make them feel a part of the company and, and the growth is we'll wrap their vehicle with our brand and we'll pay them for that. So now they're part of the organization, you know, so. You know, and that consistent flow of business. You know, we have the data and the trend to show that 
you know, it's, it's a consistent, you know, we, we, we already know in advance where the business is coming from and where it's going to go in which market. So we can already identify with that, with that crew, this is how much business we're going to be able to bring to you in the next month or two. Now for our other frontline employees, our internal frontline employees, um, we have, you know, like a franchise sort of model in place. You know, we're bringing you on board as an estimator, as a project manager, but with the ultimate goal that in 12 to 18 months, we want to make you a, an owner of your own business, your territory. We want to we want to coach you and mold you where you now, the territory that you've been operating in for the last 12, 18 months is now yours to own. You'll mm. have access to our to our brand, you'll have access to our resources, to our to our leads, but it's going to be your business to run. And we're and we did that for you. We're we're here to do that to create that partnership. That's interesting. I like that part of the model as well. So that that starts to give them some value and some focus as well. Then um, talk about about your growth again. What have you had to focus on uh, for yourself as an executive? Where have you focused on growing your skills? Um, well, I'll be honest with you. It start my the, the one thing I focused on was you know the people side of it. Um, you know. It was that wasn't always the path that I walked, right? I used to have a hard time, you know, understanding that we're not all of the same mold. I had a really hard time understanding that, you know, I would lose patience because it would take you an hour to do something when I could just use my own two hands and do it in 15 minutes. Right. And you know, but but you 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 get a nickname for that, right? You become a showboater or you become somebody who just wants to operate on his own. You don't want to operate in a team, you know. But then I earned I learned early on that. You know, I could easily just coach these individuals to to operate the same way I do, or I could just surpass them, right? And then not have that team. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I was fortunate to have a mentor that pulled me aside and he's he's the one that told me that. He's the one that said, Listen, Joe, you're 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 a rock star, right? But you know, do you want to be a rock star on your own or do you want to create rock stars? Do you want to create rock stars, you know, like yourself? Why do you why aren't you looking for the next Joe? And I and it was never, never put out there like that for me before. Oh, interesting. And so from that point on, he was always like, just always look for the next Joe. It's not going to be out there in the open. You're going to have to chip away at a few rough edges. But trust me, it's out there. And when you find that other Joe, then you start to build other Joes around that Joe. And so that's when I adopted that, that people mentality, that, okay, team building mentality from that point forward. That was the core thing that I learned at College Pro Painters as well, was the, the leader's job is to grow people. Right. And, and it was my job was to grow their skills and grow their confidence. I created an entire course called Invest in Your Leaders just to focus on growing people. So you talked earlier, it was in your bio about taking underperforming teams and, and making them higher performing. And the teams are effectively like a group of individuals. So what do you do to take that underperforming team and to to help them scale? absent of of firing them all or or is that part of the is that part of the equation <laughs> well, so, sometimes that is part of the process cameron right i mean yeah. you know it's it's one or two individuals can really take down an entire team it, mm-hmm. it's it's the truth right so yeah so that's the first step right you, you identify you know that bad apple and you get rid of it secondly as you start identity you start figuring out what weren't they receiving from from prior leadership you know what were they missing was it and a lot of the things i would hear is you know just simple transparency we don't know what management's doing. We don't know what management is up to. We're told we have to do this, but we don't know why. We don't know what purpose this serves. So my my philosophy and what I've adopted is full transparency and full access, right? There's no such thing as confidential data unless it's in a confidential uh, file, right? But I have no issue sharing with our employees, this is what our profits are this quarter. This is where we lost money. This is where we're struggling. This is where we're strong because it's going to help them understand why you're making certain decisions, why you might be 
reducing uh, work in a certain area versus another area. It's not that you're taking work away from them because you don't think they're doing a good job. It's because the data is pointing you in a different direction. And so, you know, a lot of the time they're just missing that access and that mm. transparency of what management's true intention is. And it's very easy, Cameron, to make a promise and break it. Very easy to do that. And I think it happens in a lot of organizations where management comes in and says, well, here's what I'm going to do. And then all of a sudden it can't happen for whatever reason, you know, and I've just never been a fan of that. I'll make I'll make the promises that I know Joe control that Joe can. Yeah. If Joe needs to get permission from somebody else above him, Joe's not making that promise. <laughs> wow. Good for you. That's highly insightful, too. And, and I don't think I've ever even heard anyone explain it that way before as well, because you do as soon as you break your own trust, right? We destroy our own trust. We destroy our own, um, you know, tear away at our own fabric of our own core values. Yeah. All right, let's go back to the 21, 22 year old Joe. He's just kind of, um, I guess you probably got kids at this point. You're starting out with a family. Yeah. What advice would you give yourself back as a 21, 22 year old that you know to be true today, but you wish you knew back then? Um, follow, follow the lead, you know, take, take, I, I had a hard time taking orders in my younger days. You know, it's 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 funny because I'm in a position now where I give out orders, <laughs> you know, but I had a hard time taking orders, taking criticism, you know, hey, you're not, you know, you're not doing it right. Hey, what do you know? This is how I've been doing it. I was really stubborn in my in my 20s because I knew it all, Cameron, right? We all knew it. <laughs> Back to myself, listen, you know, there's you're only 21 years old. There's no way in hell you know everything. There's no way that you're the best at what you're doing right now. You want to be the best and you might think that you're the best. But what's better than that is everybody else knowing that you're the best. Mm, I love that. So, yeah, I, I think back to when I was 21 and what I thought I knew versus now what I do know. It's And I imagine all that'll be again, right? Add another 20 years onto this. Right, right. Joe Galeas, the COO for Precision Painting Plus. Thanks so much for sharing with us on the Second Command Podcast. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me, Cameron. Loved it. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.